Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. From a hot and humid Minnesota afternoon, it's Election Shock Therapy Summer Vacation Edition. Guys, how you doing? Hanging in there. It's been interesting. It's uh, writing and protests and violence seem to uptick during the summer, um, summer months. And there's social science behind this. And it feels like we are in those, some of those sort of hot days of summer um, in a deep and profound way. We sure are. Here in Minnesota, the uh, temperature just in the last couple of days uh, has spiked into the upper 80s and uh, low 90s. My kids right now are outside in a swimming pool, but the t- political temperature here has spiked dramatically. Um, in uh, the last uh, week, uh, with a national and international news story coming out of Minneapolis, uh, African-American man uh, named George Floyd uh, was um, killed uh, by a Minneapolis police officer uh, during the process of an arrest. And uh, there has sparked both local uh, and national, and even in some cases, international protests yeah. about the treatment of African-Americans and the relationship with police and the relationship with society more generally. We're going to use this podcast to talk about that issue, to talk about what we as social scientists can say about that issue. We're trying to, uh, to use a phrase that we often use with each other. We're going to try and spread light here and not just heat. There's lots of heat to spread. And there's an appropriate place for heat, too. Uh, but here we're going to try and share what we can say as social scientists. We're also very carefully treading into this because we want to acknowledge that even as we have this conversation, we are uh, three uh, uh, white males uh, who have PhDs in political right. science, but we're also very cognizant of our backgrounds and how that influences us both um, explicitly, but also even implicitly. And we're mm-hmm. we don't want to claim that we speak with anything beyond sort of the capacities that we've been given by God. And so we're, um, uh, we're very circumspect about how we approach this conversation. And we invite you to uh, join us in a process of, of hopefully learning um, and of grace. And we hope that you hear what we have to say with, um, uh, with the amount of with sort of the humility and grace that it's offered. Um, we certainly don't want to speak with authority beyond what we have. So, right. um, that said, guys, uh, we have some concepts that are getting thrown around a lot by the news media, some of times which they seem to be getting misused, and sometimes they're being used effectively. So right. like a lot of our podcasts, we want to start by just offering some useful definitions. And um, the first one we're going to offer is one that's been sort of under, undergirding a lot of conversations about inequality of African-Americans Uh, with regard to policing and law enforcement in the United States, and that's the term systemic racism. Uh, I'll throw this out to both of you. I don't know who wants to grab this first, but guys, how would social scientists define systemic racism? Well, the idea that the the system itself, right, is structured to produce kind of racially unequal outcomes, right, that it is going to treat different people 
um, in different ways instead of treating them in the same kind of equal way, right? And so um, that, for example, right, if you are an African-American, right, that you're going to get treated differently by the police, by the judicial system, right, um, and in a way that then makes it more likely um, that you'll end up, you know, experiencing violence, experiencing being taken to, um, you know, prison, being, um, you know, convicted of a crime, um, and th that's the kind of idea, and and it's it's particularly insidious, right? Because it's often it's harder to pin down. I mean, it's not, you know, what what it isn't as simple as is saying, well, therefore, you know, all the actors in this story who are doing it are themselves racist, but it's saying that the system itself is producing these kind of racist outcomes, right? And um, and there's you know there's a lot of evidence to suggest that this is occurring, right? I mean, I I taught you know in senior seminar, and I think I've mentioned this on this podcast before. But in senior seminar a couple of years back, we read The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. And um, and she makes a very compelling case that this is what's happening in our criminal justice system, right? That, you know, you have a system that has been structured in a particular way, right, that that, that systematically disadvantages African-Americans versus whites. And so that, you know, they're more likely to get, you know, um, pulled over for the same crime or to, to get caught. Um, when they get caught, they're more likely to get charged. When they're charged, they're more likely to get convicted. When they're convicted, they're more likely to get more heavily sentenced, right? And it has to do with things like, you know, you know, that certain drugs are more likely to appear in one community and not the other. And those get penalized much more harshly. And those, those more resources are devoted to tracking those down and, and all kinds of things like that. But the idea is the system produces it. And what's really insidious, and this is what I found intriguing when I read Alexander's book, is it's not quite clear sometimes like where does this even start i mean how do you how do you get these unequal um treatments right but what is pretty obvious is that we're seeing that um in the outcomes so let me give a couple quick examples here just to illustrate what andy's talking about um specifically in relation to drugs and uh policing around drugs uh one of the most famous examples and here i'll cite one of my graduate school friends uh Clyla brown dean but she, amongst others, um, has written about the fact that uh, senten um, sentencing uh, prosecution guidelines for uh, powdered cocaine versus crack cocaine uh, differ dramatically in the United States. And they've differed dramatically since the uh, late 80s uh, with um, uh, sort of the second wave of the war on drugs. And uh, crack cocaine, which was much more uh, utilized in urban settings, uh, which was much more prevalent in urban settings compared to uh, powdered cocaine. Powdered cocaine was much more of a suburban drug, um, consumed more frequently by by whites, to be honest. Um, right. Is um, uh, crack cocaine uh, is uh, was penalized much more heavily, sort of three to four times more heavily, uh, in terms of uh, um, uh, conviction rates and also uh, sentencing guidelines compared to powdered cocaine, um, despite the fact that they were essentially the same kind of drug. Uh, today, right. the more uh, prevalent issue is probably marijuana. Uh, social science shows us that uh, African-Americans in the United States and whites in the United States are about equally likely to, to use marijuana at the same rates. And yet, uh, African-Americans are arrested for marijuana possession about three to four times more than whites are. So essentially, this is the, this is a, the same kind of social behavior, but African-Americans are being punished punished by it much more extensively. Why is that? Well, as a, as a, as a this is my kick in from political psychology. 
we in, in political psychology, we tend to talk about bias existing in three places, right? There's th there is explicit bias. So a person might say, I have explicit feelings about people and their propensities based upon their race, right? And right. we and that can go all the way up into what we kind of think of as sort of stereotypical racism, right? right. I think what people of one race are inferior to another. Yeah. There's also implicit bias which is someone would say, well, I think people should all be treated equally. Or I, I want to think of people as equal, but I don't act that way. And so despite the fact that I have sort of these overt beliefs, my practice, my understanding and sort of sort of, uh, in sort of coded issues um, doesn't meet those sort of overt beliefs. And then the third one is this sort of systemic issue, right? Because guidelines were created at some point, because policing was set up at some point, because initiatives were created at some point, um, to uh, police certain kinds of drugs or certain kinds of issues in certain ways in different environments, we get these hugely disparate arrest per, uh, behaviors between African Americans and, and whites in the United States, and and this is a source of of, of systemic racism. Right. Yeah, and it's it's interesting too that um, you see much stronger evidence of systemic racism in the areas that you all just discussed than in instances of po actual police killings. Um, mm -hmm. So, um, and potential sort of racial motivations or biases in regards to right. police killings. So it turns out that yes, African-Americans are arrested and prosecuted and jailed and then are in jail longer um, yep. for these crimes. Um, and that, but that police shootings, interestingly enough, um, it turns out that there's, so there's a study that was done um, and was published in the uh, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in 2019, um, which says that the race of an officer is actually not predictive of the race of the citizen who was shot. In other mm -hmm. words, white police officers are not more likely to have shot minority citizens than non-white officers. Um, mm -hmm. So even though there's a lot of attention being focused right now on police shootings, um, that's right. sort of only the tip of the iceberg. Um, right. And and really, you know, police shootings are, are deeply troubling in a variety of ways. Right. Um, right. But systemic racism is not so much um, obvious there as it is in, in other places. The, right. the study also showed that um, really the best predictor of of um, whether or not someone is going to be um, the likelihood of someone being shot by a police officer um, the best predictor of that is whether or not the area, the county that you live in has violent crime or not. The higher the violent crime level in the county, um, right. the more likely it is that you, a white person, a black, any person could be shot by a police officer. Um, of course, it turns out that there are certain areas that tend to have more crime than others. Those areas tend to be more disproportionately African-American and there's a whole variety of reasons why that's the case. And we can, we right. can discuss those as well. Um, but I think that sort of takeaway point is police shootings is just one little aspect of sort of a, a broader yeah. set of, right. of policing and crime related issues. It's incredibly important because it's incredibly catalytic, right? Yes. When someone loses their life, especially, especially in a law enforcement situation, we're all aggrieved, and we understand that this to be a deep source of injustice, right? Yes, uh, regardless of what the person was being arrested for, we believe that the justice system should play out, that they should be, they should have their day in court, that they should have due process, mm -hmm. and ultimately that the system should uh, behave in a way that's fair to them. So when a police officer right. um, uh, kills someone uh, in the process of apprehension, 
we know the injustice has been committed. We know that this is unjust. Um, and uh, um, this is, uh, that's why this is so catalytic. But you're right. Uh, there are far more incidents um, that never rise to this level of scrutiny uh, that are happening all the time. And that is the issue. That's the systemic issue here. We should be clear that we're going to focus on uh, policing and the judicial system today. Uh, although systemic racism doesn't just exist amongst the police or amongst the judicial system, uh, there are lots of uh, arenas in which systemic racism um, occurs, uh, including our own field in higher education, uh, but also in um, uh, primary education, in, uh, in taxation, in housing, um, and uh, in, in healthcare. Um, I just saw a study in preparing for, uh, for this uh, for this conversation that um, uh, medical studies have suggested that um, African American patients have their pain taken less seriously by caregivers relative to white or Asian patients. Um, so there's there's lots of ways in which systemic racism can exist in yep. our societies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So within the realm of of policing and law enforcement. Let's just kind of walk through some of the ways we, we, we sort of hinted at this already, but where are the where are sort of the friction points? Where are the places where we begin to see sort of interactions between both police and the judicial system and societies um, at a public policy level, even? And, and and where does race enter into those conversations? So maybe just sort of, sort of some top line stuff. So some of the problem that we're seeing um, with regards to police shootings, and of course, you know, police shootings, you know, certainly tend to disproportionately affect African, African Americans, as we've said. Um, but some of the problem with police shootings, uh, well, there, there's several different issues. First of all, it's very difficult to um, fire police officers before they get to the point where they're involved in a in an actual police killing. So, for example, Derek Chauvin, who's been, uh, you know, con, you know accused um, for, you know, third degree murder. Um, he had 18 complaints on his official record over a period of 19 years with the Minneapolis Police Department. And there was, as far as I know, no serious um, previous disciplinary action. Um, there, since 2012, there are 2,600 complaints against Minneapolis police officers. 12 mm -hmm. resulted in discipline. And of these 12, uh, 12 out of 2,600, eight were written warnings and only one, and the most severe was a 40-hour um, suspension of, of a mm -hmm. single officer. Um, and it turns out that it's, it's extraordinarily difficult to, as in most bureaucracies, to fire government yeah. employees. And this includes police officers. This is exacerbated by police unions. Um, and so, um, so, you know, addressing just that sort of general level police problem is going to take you a very long way in, in addressing these problems. Part of what makes it difficult, too, is that um, what you've seen is you've seen a decline of, of people wanting to work as police officers. Mm -hmm. uh, police, police departments are having a very hard time um, recruiting good people. And so that means whenever you fire someone, you have to uh, you have to fill their spot. Um, right. it's, it's easier to, to hold on someone, to hold on to someone, give them a slap on the wrist um, than to fire them um, because they, they crossed over the line, even in a minor right. way. Mm -hmm. um, and so so that's that's another thing that's that's exacerbating this problem. Yeah. So we have there's a couple other layered issues here, too. Yeah. Um, and I wanted uh, in the in the wake of the 
the sort of the perceived um, escal uh, escalation of crime in the 1970s and 1980s. Uh, there's a lag. Well, let me start over here. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not being articulate enough. There is a there uh, crime in the United States over the course of its history, course of a couple of hundred years, has risen and fallen in waves. Mm -hmm. And actually, the United States currently is nearing a trough in terms of overall levels of criminality. Uh, crime has been dropping in the United States since the uh, really since the early '80s. Uh, overall, I'm not talking about a specific mm -hmm. kind of crime or a specific region, but the United States in general, crime in general. Uh, the United States is right. becoming a less crime-ridden place since the 1980s. But we don't often experience it that way. And we don't often understand it that way. And we don't often vote that way. And so really through the 1990s, there was a perception the United States was becoming a more crime-ridden place, even as the evidence was moving in the opposite direction. And so a number of, of uh, bills were passed uh, by Congress to create federal money for the purposes of putting more police officers on the streets and also to give those police officers more extensive um, equipment and training, which would change the nature of how police interacted in their communities. I will add as an international relations guy that this was only aided and abetted by the emergence of first the first two Gulf War, the first Gulf War, and then subsequently 9-11. Uh, uh, and counterterrorism. Both of those events led to a surplus of military supplies uh, that the United, that U.S. Uh, um, basically, the as the Pentagon bought new equipment, it had old equipment that it needed to divest itself of, and the federal government, being unwilling to just scrap it, oftentimes gave it to police departments. And the police departments got a couple things at the same time. They got an influx of money to hire more officers. They also got a lot more militaristic equipment. So what we've seen in the United States over the course of a couple of decades is really increased militarization of the police. Now, in a racially unbiased world, that would just mean the police became more military. And there might be bad effects of that. But in a, um, especially in a world in which there is systemic racism, we see that the effect of the militarization of police has been an increasingly adversarial relationship, particularly in urban environments, particularly with communities of color. And this doesn't, this isn't just the African American community, but it is especially the African American community, particularly in regard uh, to uh, the George Floyd incident and, and others like it, uh, Brianna Taylor and others as well. Um, so there are layers to this in addition to just sort of um, in, in addition to just sort of the police culture and uh, sort of the the difficulty of, of dismissing bad police officers, there's also the changing character of the police culture itself, which means that when someone might join the police for, you know, as an individual, but is shaped by the institution to support sort of institutional right. culture. Right. Andy, right. sorry, I'm talking too much. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think the other thing I would add on there is like, I mean, just thinking about how politics has related all this, right? I mean, so you rightly point out that crime is actually going down, right? It has been for a while. Um, and yet people's perceptions when you ask them are that it's actually going up, right? Or that it's, or it's, it's certainly not going down, right? In their minds. Um, and that's the general kind of public perception. And politicians repeatedly have used this. I mean, Bill Clinton famously passed the crime bill in the 90s. You know, um, Donald Trump was just going on and on about, you know, the, the people coming from Mexico and all the bad things they were doing, right? And, the you know, his, his speeches were often, you know, kind of laden with these images of all the terrible things that were happening to Americans from these bad people, right, that we needed to deal with, right? And so, you know, you have this, this kind of 
narrative, right? And what's interesting about that narrative and that relates to this whole issue of systemic racism is um, it, it's not going to come out most of the time, right? And and actually be overtly racist. Although some of Donald Trump's you know rhetoric about um, you know sort of Mexicans was pretty close, right? But, but usually it's more subtle, right? And it, it'll use kind of what what um, we sometimes call it in political science dog whistles, right? I mean, like this idea of, you know, I'm going to talk about this thing, right? Um, without using those words. Um, and so there's actually a book we also read in Senior Sem a couple of years back, Dog Whistle Politics, right? Where they talk, you know, the author's basically talking about how, um, you know, both parties, politicians of both parties have done this, right? And they found ways to kind of demonize minorities and say, essentially, I'm going to get them into line, Right. Um, and you know, I'm going to do it by being tough on crime. And a lot of that ends up being a kind of proxy where kind of like, we all know who we think the problem is. Right. And so, you know, I'm promising you, you, I will be tough on them. And so that's what Donald Trump did, which was, you know, kind of shocking, you know, when people, when you talk about Mexican immigrants in a particular way, um, it's not a new thing. What's new is that he was, you know, frankly, less politic about it, right. In the way that he talked about it. But Lopez is saying in that book, right, that, you know, we've had this kind of narrative in American politics for a while. Um, and uh, and that then feeds into this issue of systemic racism and maybe suggests why certain communities and crimes that are more likely to be committed in certain com communities get cracked down on more. Uh, kind of coming back to your point about sort of the different penalties for different drugs. Yeah. yeah. Well, since Chris was uh, brought up the question of just general sorts of policy um, policies in policing. Just a few more thoughts. Some good news and some bad news. Uh, the good news is that police shootings and police killings uh, have actually been on the decline over the past six years in large urban areas. You said six years? Uh, over the past six years. Um, okay. Basically since um, since Michael Brown, um, okay. the shooting Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014. Um, and so basically what you've seen is that you've seen a decline in police shootings and police killings from shootings in large urban areas. This has yeah. been offset by um, basically a, an uptick in uh, the number of police shootings and police killings in rural and suburban areas. Um, and part of the story is that what you've seen is that in the wake of the Michael Brown um, you know, shooting, you actually saw a number of big metropolitan areas begin to institute some, some reforms. Some reforms worked, some didn't. So racial bias training for police actually has had no noticeable effect on, the on a decline in, in race-based shootings. Um, body cameras turned out not to be effective either. But it turns out that police departments that have sort of demilitarized in their um, in their sort of equipment and their um, approach have seen success. Um, police departments that have adopted de-escalation uh, practices that have right. Right. certain sorts of, of chokeholds, for example, um, mm -hmm. police departments that have instituted those types of reforms actually have seen declines in police shootings and police killings. So we need, and this is for both, you know, not just for African-Americans, this is, this is shootings and killings of people of all races and ethnicities. And so what we need is we need more of those particular uh, sorts of policies. And, yeah, that's and really helpful. Would, 
would um, would also see success, it seems, in um, in smaller de police departments in rural and suburban areas as well. But those those sorts of departments are somewhat behind some of the large urban areas that are obviously getting more more of the attention and that are more on the cutting edge of these sorts of reforms. All right. And that's something worth noting here is that um, just as we would expect, uh, larger either suburban or, or urban police departments often have more budgetary resources to provide various kinds of systematic training, whether it's in de-escalation or whether it's in warrior training, which is one of the issues in the Minneapolis situation, which we're, we're going to turn to in a minute. But it's, or also in, in the sort of a, you know a de, um, anti-bias or de-escalation training too. Likewise, uh, more rural, smaller police departments may not have the resources to offer that kind of systematic training. So on the one hand, they're smaller, so on a per-department basis, their potential impact is less. But we, but it's it is harder to actually get to that sort of base of smaller uh, departments and actually produce sort of real substantive effects in terms of of, of sort of modifying the culture of the police department. Yeah, and to be clear, you know, some of this, some of these, you know, shifts in culture or practice do not require huge amounts of extensive training. Um, it doesn't take millions yeah. of dollars to train in de-escalation or to right. basically ban certain sorts of maneuvers. <laughs> like, right. 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 Um, and, and that's sort of the low-hanging fruit um, yep. that, um, that all these departments um, could sort of make use of, I think. Yep. Yep. Well, there's lots of issues here, and we're only scratching the surface. So let's, get, let's hone in a little bit on our, what's happening right around us here in the Twin Cities. And let's talk about uh, Minneapolis. And so uh, there's lots of things even here we could talk about, but just in a nutshell, uh, we should say up front too, in much the same way that we apologize for our inability to speak to the lived experience of African Americans in the United States. Uh, none of the three of us are actually native Minnesotans either. Right. Uh, one of the virtues of virtues or costs of academic of a higher academic higher academia is that we often live in places where we didn't grow up. And so I grew right. up in, in rural Ohio. Um, and I'll let you guys each say say quickly where you grew up at. So, because we're not Minnesota natives here. Yeah, I'm. I grew up in you know Senegal and West Africa, and then in South Carolina was based in the home in the U United States. Yeah, I grew up in the Dallas Fort Worth uh, metropolitan area in Texas. So. so all of us are learners when it came to yep. living in the, uh, Minnesota and living in in Minneapolis, and so. I uh, and and I should say too that we uh, we live in and around the suburbs surrounding uh, yep. surrounding Minneapolis and St. Paul, yep. and what I kind of coming to Minnesota, my understanding was uh, Minnesota was was two things. Minnesota was sort of this um, Garrison Keeler type place where all the women were strong, <laughs> all the men were good looking, and all the children right. above average, and that was especially true in sort of things like educational outcomes. Minnesota right. was kind of up there with 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 Massachusetts and Connecticut and a few other states that's had really exceptional educational outcomes. Um, and they the way that they got that was by being the land of 10,000 taxes. And right. um, there were lots of, uh, this was a high tax state, but also a high sort of social, um, social policy state, sort of social goods yep. kind of state, right? Yep. And in my time, in my uh, 10 plus years of living here, I've come to learn that there, it's a lot more complicated picture than that. And although Minnesota does have very high educational outcomes, it also has one of the highest gaps uh, between whites and uh, racial minorities in a, on a number of issues, including educational achievement, but right. also including things like rate of home ownership, 
and uh, debt load and yeah. a number of other uh, issues as well. So what's uh, what is the story that as you guys have been able to sort of glean from um, in terms of Minnesota's own relation uh, to um, systemic racism? Yeah, it's, I mean, I guess I'll, I'll offer a, a tentative thought and take it for what it's worth because I'm not an expert on Minnesota politics and I've been here not even as long as you. Um, but, um, you know, I, I wonder if some of the challenge we face here in Minnesota is that um, this is a very white state. I mean, we're upper Midwest, we're very white. And so we have this very large gap, um, as you've rightly noted. And we, you know, I wonder if one of the issues is that for, um, for a lot of Minnesotans, right? I mean, this, you know, the, the African-American community is maybe more other um, than it is in some places, right? So, I mean, mm -hmm. for example, I mean, I went to, you know, my undergraduate, you know, college in, in South Carolina, right? Which was much more African-American, right? And so you're much more interconnected as communities. Not that South Carolina doesn't have its own set of problems because it does, right? But, but it's, you know, there's much more of a sense of interconnection and in that you're, you know, you're sitting in classrooms, um, that, you know, you have a, you know, there's a lot of white students, there's a lot of African-American students, it's much more mixed, right? Um, whereas in Minnesota, my sense is in a lot of places that just isn't the case. I mean, there are certainly integrated neighborhoods where you have a, a good mixture of people, um, but there's a lot of a lot of separation. And because the African-American community is relatively small compared to the population of Minnesota as a whole, um, I just wonder if that's made led to them being more marginalized, right? Um, and then led to like, uh, honestly, less attention to these issues. Um, it's also complicated too, because even when you look at, um, you know, which which minority groups get get um, represented here, I mean, like, so for example, you know, one of the, you know, the representatives in Congress right now from Minnesota is Ilhan Omar, who's from the Somali community, right? Which is mm -hmm. not quite the same, right? I mean, like they're, right. they're both black Americans, right? In that sense. But it's, you know, there's a very big divide between the Somali-American community and the African-American community, right? Even though in one sense you might think, well, they're together. And, and you know, there are some connections, right. but there's a lot of disagreements. And I think that, too, leads to some, you know, interesting, yeah, it's an interesting power dynamic. So it's, it's yeah, I, I don't know. I don't have anything like a full answer, but those are some of the things I, I, I think about is, like, maybe why we, we struggle with this in ways that other places don't. I'm not sure how much I have to add. I just moved here. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, I, I was, I, I do remember even uh, last year uh, when I was visiting Minnesota for the very first time, um, being told um, by you good gentlemen um, and also some other folks just about a little bit about um, some of the historic um, racial tensions in, in, um, in the Twin Cities and in Minnesota, right. I'm somewhat surprised by it. Um, and so I feel like I, I'm just barely becoming acquainted um, with with the history. I, I you know, grew up in, um, you know, my media circles, of course, were quite white. Um, but I did grow up in a very large metropolitan area where there's a lot of African-Americans and a ton of Hispanics. Um, mm -hmm. And one of my best childhood friends was Hispanic. Uh, so it was, you know, so, so coming here, you know, and, and there, I mean, there's racial tensions in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, just like there are in every other, you know, large metropolitan um, area in the United States. But it, um, but I was surprised by just the level of, of tension that, that I've sort of seen here in the Twin Cities. Um, I don't have any good data to compare the two necessarily, but just, those are just my, my general impressions. Let me talk just briefly about one specific issue, which I think is illustrative of 
kind of the ways that both systemic racism work, but the way this has played out in the Twin Cities. I remember back in, wow, gosh, it's been uh, over 10 years ago, but just at the beginning of, I, we lived in Minnesota for about a year, and we decided that we were going to uh, buy a house. And we bought a, you know, buying a house in Maple Grove, where we live now. It's the same house. You know, we've lived in the same house now for 10 years. But at that time, when I, we started house shopping, I started looking at sort of the history of, uh, because, because I'm academic and this is what we do, uh, we started looking at the history of sort of housing and in, in the Twin Cities, and it's it's fraught with a behavior known as redlining. And redlining is a decidedly racist policy uh, where basically either certain types of groups were restricted from living in certain areas or there were impediments put upon their ability to live in certain kinds of areas. And this isn't just African-Americans, although it definitely affected African-Americans. It also affected uh, Jewish populations. It's affected um, uh, uh, immigrants from Southeast Asia in the Twin Cities. There have been various kinds of red lines built. Now, I should mention, since the Civil Rights Act, um, so we're talking, you know, um, you know, more than 50 years ago, uh, there's been a heavy crackdown against redlining laws. And so redlining laws are are regularly declared unconstitutional. And and you rarely see um, uh, municipalities attempt to create redline laws anymore. However, people tend to live based upon uh, uh, systemic patterns of behavior. And so even in places where redline laws no longer exist, like the Twin Cities, it's no longer legal to have redline laws here, we still see the development of of communities based upon ethnicity or based upon upon race for laws that no longer exist. And that doesn't just affect where people live. It affects housing prices. It affects um, uh, taxation bases. And those things subsequently affect things like policing. And so uh, housing, which sounds like it's this discrete issue, actually plays into things like criminal justice and education, taxation fund and funding, and all sorts of issues as well. And that, that persists even after the law which created it has been removed. And right. so that's the real problem with systemic racism is we may have said, okay, we disavow those actions we took previously, but the ripple effects of those actions are still there and they're not necessarily getting better. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. So in the United, in, 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 uh, in the twin cities specifically, uh, we have, uh, um, inequalities in relation to where people of color are living, where African-Americans specifically are living, how those areas are policed, uh, and the techniques that, the, that are being used in those, in those policings, the equipment being used where those, uh, in, in those kinds of policings. Um, and as, as, as Matt, as you said, this doesn't necessarily lead to a greater propensity for police shootings, but there are systemic inequalities in those areas and we've gotten one of those in Minnesota, which has been highly catalytic. We've gotten protests. Those mm-hmm. protests have become violent. Those protests are complicated based upon who's participating in them and who may be responsible for violence or nonviolence in those protests. Can we talk just for a minute, guys, about the protests themselves? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What do we make of the protests? How effective are they? Um, are the, are protests like this effective in causing change? So, um, a few things. So, there's been a lot of protests, not only in Minnesota, of course, but around the country. The majority of the protesters, just like the majority of police, have conducted themselves well. Mm-hmm. Um, right. There are exceptions. 
there have been people who have turned to um, from peaceful protesting to actual sort of violent forms of protest. So rioting, looting, arson, vandalism. Um, both whites and blacks have been involved um, in those sorts of illegal activities. Um, and some people have actually um, been killed. Um, police officers and civilians have been killed um, in, in the process of these, these, um, these sort of violent protests. Um, so protest in general um, can be a very effective sort of instrument of, of social change. Um, but violent protests can actually um, end up backfiring in certain ways. It's understandable that some people feel the need to use violence um, in order to gain attention um, and to cause um, leaders and communities to take issues seriously um, and to actually push for reform. Um, it turns out that sometimes these sorts of um, violent protests can cause other problems. Um, they can cause... Um, they can cause real damage to um, to minority um, and immigrant-owned uh, businesses, for example. Um, there's studies that have been done of race riots in Brooklyn, for example, that actually led to the a significant decrease in the property values of of minority and immigrant uh, communities, and that has you know other sorts of downstream effects. Right. Um, it's also true that. Um, that non that excuse me violent protests um, versus nonviolent protests can sort of do weird things in how they affect um, news cycles. Um, mm. So so investigations and so there's some interesting studies on this. There's a Harvard economist who who studied this. It turns out that investigations of sort of a police shooting is incident that goes viral. Basically, what happens is you see police activity in that area sort of decline, and as you see riots increase and police activity in a, in patrolling of an area, for example, declines, you can see a, a, an actual rise in, um, in homicides and violence in those areas, whether they're black, whether they're white, it doesn't matter. Um, and this can ultimately lead to a lot more people getting killed in the long run. Um, so there, there's a whole lot of ways in which um, sort of the protest and violence, um, violent protests can can cause unintended consequences. There's actually there's some other studies that um, that show that um, whereas peaceful protests, for example, um, they tend to be more positively covered in the media and they tend to generate um, more sort of support for Democrats. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, mm -hmm. um, the, the same study showed that um, that whenever there's violent protest, you see this sort of um, you see, especially amongst whites, and I think one of you addressed this already, you see this sort of uptick in this desire for law and order and mm -hmm. more support for Republican candidates. And this might have, this probably actually helped contribute to President Nixon actually being elected and becoming president. So, right. so oh, we're going to talk about that too. Yeah. So there's a lot of sort of it, what, what, what protests do and the sort of dynamics that they create is really, really complex. And there's some, there's some positives and there, there's some negatives. So I, I've been rambling long enough. Yeah. Well, I just add, like, I think, you know, governor walls actually addressed this pretty well the other night, right. When he said, um, he said, look, you know, you, the protests have raised a really important point and they're absolutely right. I completely agree with them. Right. That we have this, you know, the, an injustice has been done. This is terrible. We need to, we need to look honestly at this and think about 
you know, what do we do to try to stop this from happening again? And how do we deal with what, what happened? Right. Um, and he said, that's what we should be talking about. Right. Yeah. And the problem with when, when the protests turn violent, right. He says, I have to, as governor, think about how do I restore order? Right. Because we can't have mm -hmm. a good conversation about that while the city is burning quite literally. Right. Um, we have to, we have to restore order. And so, you know, I think that, that reinforces the kind of the point you're making, Matt, that, you know, that, some kinds of protests, right? These kind of peaceful protests do help us have a good conversation with this. The others tend to lead more toward this backlash, right? Of we've got to restore law and order. We can't do anything else until we do that. And again, rightly or wrongly, right? That's the that's the kind of reaction um, you you tend to get with that, right? And the the danger for those who are protesting, right, is that this gets lost, right? The the kind of the point of the protests of we have a problem, we have the systemic racism, we have this injustice that's been done, that gets lost in this kind of, you know, fog of we have to, we have to restore order, which is why some people are suspecting, right, that the, you know, that the, maybe these, the, the turn to violence, right, is a kind of different kind of protest, right, there might be people coming in who want that to happen, right, who say, oh, good, right, there's protests, we have cover of a lot of peaceful protesters, we're going to turn them violent and see if we can change this conversation to a conversation we'd prefer, which is more of a kind of law and order conversation. Um, and that's another thing the governor's, you know, hinted at at different points and come out and said, actually, uh, is that maybe that this is, you know, maybe there's a difference in kind between these kind of peaceful protesters on the one hand who are actually out there for these kind of good motivations and these, you know, violent protesters who might be doing something, have a completely different agenda. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, the tragedy of the violent protest is that it ends up bringing more immediate harm to these yeah. minority and immigrant communities, Absolutely. you know, businesses and, and food and right. drug stores that, that are basically gone for a long period of time. And that has yep. a lot of problems, you know, negative yep. implications. And Absolutely. then and then also, you know, it, it basically distracts us from the really needed conversations and also, you know, is shown in studies to basically sort of allow, you know, allow white people um, to basically um, sort of avoid thinking about the needs for reform and to focus mainly on law and order. Um, right. And, right. and it gives an opportunity for sort of the, the, the law and order sort of candidate, not that law and order is a bad thing, you need law and order, but, but right. it, it, it creates an opportunity for people to focus more on that. Um, yep. And so, you know, so, so violent protests really do bring more harm in the long run. Um, and, and that's, that's what, you know, makes me so sad about what we've, some of what we've seen in Minneapolis yeah. is, is yeah. how, how detrimental that's going to be. Right. So here's so. the, here's sort of the theoretical counterpoint to what, to what you just said. Now I, I'm inclined to agree with you to an extent, but let me offer this. So the, um, the author, the scholar that I turn to a lot when I think about social protest movements and uh, violent movements more generally, sort of mass movements, is Charles Tilley. I think he does a nice job of explaining the process by which mobilization occurs that leads uh, people essentially to join mass movements, whether those movements are peaceful or whether they're violent. Now, let's give an example of what, uh, what a nonviolent movement would be like. Imagine uh, uh, an alternate history in, in which um, the uh, tragic... Um, and unjust events surrounding uh, uh, George Floyd occurred. And all of the reactions were entirely peaceful. There were gatherings, there were vigils, um, mm -hmm. there were demonstrations, but they were entirely peaceful. It would certainly have been a Minneapolis news story for weeks. It would have been a national news story for a day or two. And then it would have, would have moved on to something else. Um, mm -hmm. 
the extent of the news coverage occurred and the mobilization of people, not just in Minneapolis, but in other cities around the United States, uh, occurred because not only did these events become larger and become violent, but because the reaction to the violence was also violent. And so we saw sort of this this sort of uh, tit for tat that occurred in, in Minneapolis, and um, and we I want to talk in a minute about where the source of that violence came from. But what Tilly argues is that what ha- what happens is when you have not just a cause and not just resources and not just the mobilization of people for a cause through those resources, but you have opposition, that those are the necessary ingredients to create a social movement. And, and so uh, what you saw in Minneapolis is sort of, sort of a, almost a paradigmatic case of what Tilly predicts would happen for violent movements, that um, the violence itself uh, was a necessary uh, catalyst for making this a broader um, conflict, right? Uh, that this would not have been a broader conflict absent the violence. Mm-hmm. And so on the one hand, I agree with you that uh, from a purely – uh, my wish would be that this would have been nonviolent. From a, you could, um, I, I can, I can have some understanding for those who would say, no, we, we, we're, uh, um, we need to draw attention to this. And there are people who are sort of having fights about who Martin Luther King Jr. was and what he meant, um, right. and using various proof texted quotes from his speeches right. to make those cases. Right. But on one side of that is this argument that, well, no, we, uh, there's, there's looting and there's rioting and there's destruction of property because there's no other way to get people to listen to us. And so these things are happening because we know that, that this would just be a, two, a 48 hour news story if this didn't happen. I don't think that's a I don't think that's a good strategy, uh, but I understand why that's being done. And I think Tilly explains why that's being done. Right, right, yeah. But I think, I think that's right. Well, I think the danger yeah. is you get the backlash, right? I mean, like, oh, absolutely. May, so maybe it works. That's you know probably the less likely, and the more likely is it gives kind of a math point is it gives people an excuse to say, see, this is why we're not going to mm-hmm. listen. We're just going to focus on the thing we're we, we're concerned about, which is you're burning stuff down. And, you know, you're kind of cutting off your nose to spite your face is how it'll be interpreted, right? When you're burning, say, the businesses or homes of minorities, right? And so, um, so I think that's, but yeah, I think you're right. I mean, that's that's the motivation. It's the same motivation, I mean, like, you know, to kind of escalate to another level that terrorists have, right? I mean, like, you know, and you you try to get attention by doing really dramatic things, right? And mm-hmm. and then you hope that you can do that and not get crushed, right? Um, and And sometimes it works. Yeah. The, the difference is, I would say that in the case of, of terrorism, those choices are almost always made by a small number of actors and yeah. are made relatively strategically. They might be dumb, right. but they're trying to be self-interested, yep. Yep. whereas social movements often occur at the level, not at the unit level of the individual, but at the unit right. level of the movement. And so sometimes movements turn violent for really idiosyncratic reasons that we can't point yeah. to a single individual and say, this individual decided to take this movement violent, but rather right. a couple of things spun out of control. There are a couple of reactions and all of a right. sudden the movement's violent and there are effects of that. And so yeah. we're not saying necessarily that people, specific individuals are choosing violence unless of course they are. And so um, guys, can I, can I talk about the boogaloos now? Sure. All right. This is all you. All right. Let me. Uh, um, I'm just gonna. Um, I'm just gonna bring this out. So, here's an interesting social science question. 
and I'll just leave it at that. We don't, I want to say up front, we don't have good data on this. I would love to have good data on what I'm about to tell you, but I, we don't have it. So Andy alluded a few minutes ago to the idea that the actual nature of the protests is complicated and not everybody who are part, who are part of the protests in Minneapolis or in other cities as well um, are, have the same set of core beliefs. And um, a dominant news story that emerged over the weekend here in Minneapolis was that the protests um, over the killing of George Floyd had been infiltrated by white nationalists. And then sort of conflated with the term of white nationalism was this other term called boogaloos. And so that was a new term to me. And I set on a quest to learn a little bit more about the boogaloos. And boy, did I. Um, so here's the deal. <laughs> There is this uh, online network, and I really do mean network. Uh, this is uh, existing in uh, online uh, chat forums like Reddit and 4chan um, and other places as well, uh, more dicier corners of the internet, um, of people who refer to themselves uh, by a group of various kinds of names. Uh, but one of the more prominent ones is, is Boogaloo. Um, I could go into the etymology of that, but what's more important is to tell you what their belief system is. The belief system of these people who are pre who are predominantly white are um, is, is accelerationism. <clears throat> they believe that um, the American state is corrupt and the American state uh, will collapse and that their goal is to push along the collapse of the American state. So in some ways, they're actually a lot closer to anarchism than they are to any other kind of political ideology. Uh, they believe there's a lot of um, apocalyptic sort of doomsday prepper associated with, with accelerationism uh, and with boogaloos. They believe they need to be well armed. There's a heavy second amendment defense sort of streak within this group. Um, so weapon, weapons, firearms are particularly important, but also sort of equipment to survive a, a coming anarchy is important. And they believe that they need to kick off the anarchy. They are decidedly anti-police force. Now, Within this group, there are some who are explicitly white nationalist, but not all of them. And some of them are sort of espouse the idea that they have, you know, sort of real sympathy for the plight of African Americans, and they want to arm African American communities to defend themselves against the police. Now, here's where this gets really crazy. Uh, there were suppositions in the wake of the uh, once the uh, once uh, um, George Floyd died and uh, um, the, the protests were sort of began here in the Twin Cities, there were a lot of online chatter about people in this movement going to the Twin Cities uh, to basically use this opportunity to, uh, to strike out against uh, police forces. Right. Whether this happened or not is the big social science question. So initially the, um, the mayor of, of St. Paul announced that uh, over the weekend that none of the people arrested uh, in his city over the weekend were, were residents of the city. Uh, Minneapolis mayor said that something like 70% of uh, people arrested in Minneapolis were not from Minneapolis. 
Of course, one of the local news TV stations did some fact checking on that and it looked a little bit more skeptical. It was, it was not quite as clear that that was the case. Uh, right. Yes, a lot of people weren't residents of Minneapolis, but they're residents of first ring suburbs, for example. There were some people coming from outside the um, outside the state, right? So people from, were arrested from Florida and from Arkansas and from Michigan and from Illinois and elsewhere in Wisconsin as well. Right. Um, so there, there there were people arrested. There were people coming from out of the state to join this protest, but not. It wasn't like it was very clear that there was this huge influx of either white nationalists or accelerationists who were looking to sort of foment some kind of anti-police insurrection. Nevertheless, that has become one of the dominant narratives sort of the company this protest is that basically African-Americans who lived in Minneapolis were peacefully protesting uh, George Floyd, but uh, or protesting his death, uh, but the, that this was turned violent by sort of outside forces. And we've heard this narrative in, in places like in Chicago. We've heard this narrative in, in mm-hmm. Washington, D.C. as well. We don't know yet how much validity there is for this, but it's out there. And I think we're going to continue hearing this narrative. Yeah. It's out there, but there's so little actual support in the in the right. data for this. I mean, there's anecdotes, right? Um, but, you know, I mean, for the, the vast majority of protesters in a given area are locals or from right. the for, from the area, right? From from the immediately surrounding region. And we know that violent protesters um, are white and black and all the above, right? So I I mean, it's not to say that these sorts of extremist groups on the left and the right don't have a role to play, but they don't seem to be in the driver's seat from from what we can tell. Maybe maybe some data will emerge that will will complicate that, but. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. two quick quick thoughts. I mean, one is, I think you know, I was watching the good bit of the coverage over the weekend, um, and one of the, the news, you know, the WCCO was saying um, that, that certainly when they were looking at, you know, talking to the different protesters, the vast majority were from Minnesota, right? So, which is not to say that there aren't, you know, maybe the violent ones are are from out of the state, right? And that's certainly possible. Um, that's what Walls is suggesting, but certainly, like the, you know, the most of the people out on the street that they were talking to were locals, right? Whether they were from Minneapolis itself or not, um, they were Minnesotans. Um, I think the other thing I would just say is, I mean, I'll put on my Ma- Machiavelli hat here for a second, right? It's very pointy. It's, it's nice. Right? It is very pointy, right? And it's, you know, I think this is tremendously useful for Jim Walls. And if I was Governor Walls or if I was one of his advisors, this is probably exactly the kind of thing I would want to be saying, right? Um, even absent the data to say it very clearly, right? Because you can, what you can do essentially is you can say there are two separate issues going on here, right? One is this legitimate issue of injustice and systemic racism we need to deal with. And that I think Walls is, you know, serious about, you know, caring about anyway, whether he knows what to do about it or not is a different question. Um, And then the second is this issue of law and order, which I think he's also serious about. He wants to restore it. He does not want the cities going crazy, right? Or the state going crazy. Um, And so you divide it and you say, these are separate things, right? Here's this group of kind of virtuous protesters. I agree with them. I want to work with them. I want to see us make progress there. Here's this violence that's going on. That's a different group. We're going to, you know, explain why they're a bad group and we're going to deal with them as they deserve harshly, right? Um, and and you kind of make those two separate issues, right? So again, whether the data backs it up or not, I mean, I'm not sure either. I think you're right. We don't really know at this point, um, but I can understand kind of politically why this is a useful distinction that Walls is making. And, you know, when he was saying that, I was like, oh yes, this, you know, 
this makes sense to me kind of thinking about it in kind of Machiavelli's Prince terms. Yeah. Although to be clear, even though over the weekend he was saying that the majority were from out of state, he has since had to walk that back. Yep. And yeah. basically the administration yeah. said, no, oh, that actually wasn't correct. Yeah. So, right. He did. Because that was, I think is clearly not true. It yeah. still could be true that there is a, the kind of violent minority is the, the, one of these other groups, right? That is, is coming into stirrup trouble. And there were less, I think, we just don't have the data one way or the other. No, we don't. On the protest front, Matt, do you, uh, is this, is this rhetorical tactic by the governor and by the mayors? Uh, is this useful for bringing about a cessation of violence? If you just kind of, if you kind of perform this splintering action, say I stand with all the nonviolent protesters and I oppose the, the violent protesters, are you giving life to the more extreme version or are you sort of draining it of, of potential recruits? I mean, I, I think it, I mean, I think it could be politically useful and also morally useful as well. Right. I mean, you want to, I mean, because the danger of the danger is that the peaceful protesters are going to be caught up and associated with those people who are doing violence. Now there's probably a little bit of an overlap between the two. Um, but you know, the vast majority are, are being peaceful. They might be loud, which is fine, but they're being peaceful, right? And they're, they're abiding by the law with perhaps the exception of breaking curfew, but, but they're, you know, otherwise being law abiding. Right. And so, so, you know, sort of distinguishing between the two is, is also, I think sort of morally helpful for the cause in addition to being potentially politically useful as well. And like you said, maybe sort of draining away, um, some of the effectiveness of, of those people who are, who are, you know, looting and burning things down and, and, and causing right and shooting, you know, shooting people and, and shooting yep. police officers and so on. So mm -hmm. now amongst the things we don't know, uh, and boy, there's a lot today, guys, but yeah. amongst things we don't know is what impact, if any, this will have on the 2020 election. And it sounds a little bit cavalier to make that turn. Uh, we, you know, I don't take lightly the loss of life, um, and that has occurred for uh, for George Floyd and his for his family, but as political scientists, we always think about to the the broader national implications of something like this. Right. And there have been responses um, from the White House, and uh, yes. President Trump has not been silent on this issue. Quite the opposite. And so, yes, exactly. So let's let's just sort of lay out here what has been Trump's approach to responding. Uh, to mass protests and rioting uh, in major U.S. urban areas around the country? Well, <laughs> um, so, so it's been interesting in that there was basically a three or four day period in which there were no, like over the weekend, in which there were no official statements that were made or given, mm -hmm. right? no official, you know, no press briefings by the president, no, you know, speeches or anything that as you would typically have during sort of moments of sort of national crisis and unrest presidents, but both parties tend to step in and speak to those situations and sort of play sort of a certain sort of leadership function, you might say. Yeah. Trump did not do that. Um, he, instead of giving official statements, he basically sat in his bunker and tweeted. <laughs> um, and by the way, we should say, you mean literally bunker, because there were protests yeah. outside the White House, yeah. and in response, the White House turned off the outside lights, and uh, Secret Service escorted Trump to, uh, to yeah. a bunker. 
Yeah, and I mean, he got some grief for like, how dare you, you know, sit in a bunker? But you know, there was there were some threats on the outside. But I think the more interesting issue is um, sort of the the nature of his tweets. He has had some tweets that have been better, um, but of course, the ones that have gained a lot of attention have been you know these very inflammatory tweets of you know things along the lines of once the the looting begins the shooting begins right yeah. uh, other mm-hmm. sorts of very- which is one of those dog whistles that andy talked about by yep. the way yeah yep. exactly yep. exactly and some people have said like this is merely a descriptive statement which <laughs> is simply not how these statements have typically been used by politicians nope. in the past and so that's not entirely uh, honest um and and that's certainly not um and, and certainly trump has always been a big sort of um proponent and advocate of of you know using strong you know coercive force of the state to bring about law and order right so um so you know his tweets have been inflammatory and he hasn't um he hasn't been the leader that i think um, we would all hope him to be but that most of us have um most of us most of us have not come to expect anything different unfortunately right no i mean I, I wasn't at all surprised right i mean i think if if donald trump could rise to an occasion to unify us you know that would have been on evidence long before um and what's striking is he doesn't try right i mean like it's it's been a struggle in recent years you know for barack obama or george w bush to unify us because we've become so politically divided um, that it was hard for Obama to really get a hearing on the the right or to get for Bush to get a hearing on the left. Um, but they tried, right? In these moments, they would try to speak, you know, on behalf of us and to express kind of our collective pain that we were going through. And, and there's been none of that attempt with Trump. I mean, he just sort of, you know, it's all about kind of his self-interest, taking political shots, right? Um, and so in this case, I mean, it takes the form of, you know, threatening to send in military, which is really a disturbing, especially in the American political context, just very, it feels very weird for us. Um, that's the kind of thing that happens, you know, in, in other countries that are much more in favor of kind of military, you know, dealing with citizens, so to speak, which is not something we in the United States have usually been very okay with, right? Um, and and then taking shots at people like Jacob Fry, the mayor of Minneapolis, right, as kind of this, you know, far left mayor who's not doing anything and not trying very hard, right? And I mean, like, I mean, I think we can be critical of Jacob Fry's policies, perhaps, but to say that Jacob Fry isn't trying or that he doesn't care, right, is, I think, also misleading, right? I mean, like, I think he does care and he is trying, um, you know, and maybe we could say he's been ineffective in some sense, but it's certainly not a lack of effort. I mean, I was watching him at the press conference the other night and he looked exhausted, right? I mean, it's, you know, this is not a person who's like laying down on the job and doing nothing, um, even if, again, we might want to disagree with his particular policies. So the president's just, you know, there's been those kind of things. Um, and then, of course, you have the incident of, you know, the, you know, essentially tear gassing protesters so that the president could walk down and have his picture taken in front of a church um, to make a statement. Right. And, and that's like a kind of other this, level of disturbing. I feel like we need to really dive into this. So can we unpack this event? So um, president, I mean, help me out here. Jump in guys. Uh, president Trump was giving a speech in the Rose garden and was talking about the federal response to uh ongoing you know sort of protests and and rioting behavior in um uh in a number of major american cities there were ongoing protests just outside the white house as he was doing this 
before we even get to that, what his what his next move was, we should announce that one of the reasons, one of, one of the actions he took, and one of the reasons he was giving a speech in the Rose Garden was he had invoked the Insurrection Act of eighteen oh seven. This is the first. By the way, if there was ever an argument that American laws should have sunset provisions on them, the fact that in twenty twenty the American president just invoked a law from eighteen oh seven is a pretty good reason that maybe we should have some sunset laws in some of our. Sunset provisions, some of our laws. Although kudos, yeah. kudos to the advisor who found that. I mean, like, you know. Well, it had <laughs> last been used, in, it had been used in 1992 in response yeah. to the uh, riots in Los Angeles after right, the right. Rodney King beating. Yeah. Wow. What is, the insur- what is the Insurrection Act of 1807? And can you believe we're talking about this? <laughs> I, I, I can't explain the Insurrection Act of 1807. Well, I can a little bit. So um, it was largely uh, um, it was largely circumscribed uh, by laws passed under Abraham Lincoln in the 1860s, but was designed to allow the uh, U.S. government and the U.S. military to intervene in states to restore law and order. Now, obviously, in the wake of the Civil War, uh, this was uh, this was largely done away with in the wake of the civil war the federal government uh um uh provisions to prevent the u uh the u.s military from intervening in insurrections within states but it was passed in 1807 because um slaveholding states were worried about slave insurrections in the in those states in the wake of the successful slave revolt and rebellion in haiti so the, the slave revolt in Haiti takes place in 1805. Uh, U.S. slaveholding states in 1807 are worried that there's going to be sort of a, something similar in, in those states. And so they, they get Congress to essentially say, if there's insurrections in states, we'll, we'll send in the U.S. military and protect the law and order in these states. This is the basis of this law, which is still on the books. Um, well, it, it's ironic that Trump would want to invoke the law that is designed to put down <laughs> slave rebellions, yes, right. rebellions, you know, yes. to, to put down, you know, um, you know, so-called insurrections, right. you know, right. I mean, the riots, but you know, but of of people that are protesting racial injustices, it's it's particularly um, ironic and rich. So, yeah. so, to, so, to make this clear, so um, there are strictures put on this, and Trump doesn't acknowledge those strictures, but I think any reasonable reading of the Constitution. Uh, and any and the Supreme Court would support these structures, which is that a a governor of a state has to invite the U.S. Right. Uh, the military in for this purpose. Yep. So Trump can't yep. just blithely, as commander in chief, invade Alabama. Right? right. The governor of Alabama would have to invite him in. And as of our recording, zero of fifty governors have invited federal troops right. in uh, to protect uh, law and order in those states. And right. you could sure bet that no Democratic governor is going to do this. I can't imagine a Republican governor doing this either, um, mostly because it would be so, it would make them look so weak. And I think that's problematic for electoral reasons. All the states have access to their National Guards, and like like Minnesota, which has called up its National Guard, other states have called up their National Guards as well. And in most cases, I think this is more than sufficient uh, to prevent any kind of rioting behavior. We've seen uh, rioting behavior drop dramatically in the Twin Cities the last yeah. few days yeah. since the National Guard has been on the streets. It's just 
Yeah. And the question is how sustainable that is, but it, but for the short term, I think that's very effective. This is a political stunt by the president. I don't think this is going to come of anything. I sincerely doubt that U.S. troops will be um, deployed to any U.S. cities, but if it did, it would be dramatic and at an international relations level, really scary because usually when we see the deployment of a, of a military, uh, a, a nation's military against its own citizens, it's in the form of a coup. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's the kind of thing we criticize elsewhere yeah, for yeah. very good reasons. Yeah, I mean, um, it would be, yeah, this would be a significant it, issue. Yeah. I mean, you know, as you said, it, it is, you know, purely political stunt. And as with, you know, a lot of things um, in the past three and a half years, Trump says um, crazy things um, and, you know, doesn't necessarily follow through with them. Right. Um, but in this case, you know, it's it's designed to appeal to people who, you know, again, are or wanting to see a restoration of law and order. We don't know the ins and outs of, you know, this this yep. old law um, that's two centuries old, for example. Yep. They hear Trump wants to restore peace and order, um, and they, you know, see the the rioting and the protesting and and uh, and the chaos, and they say, like, hey, I, I want to see peace and order restored. I was having an interesting conversation with a couple of neighbors about this, right? Um, and they were, you know, grieved by um, by the police killing. Uh, they were also upset about um, all of the destruction downtown, um, and that's the thing right. they emphasized, right. right? And and I think you know Trump when he's speaking is speaking to those sorts of people, yep. Um, and those sorts of people will listen, um, and that is going to rally sort of you know those sorts of people to Trump. But of course, he's going to need more than those people to um, win um, in yep. um, in November. So yeah, yep. I think well, you're right. That's let's, Let's get to the other other part of his strategy here, which is after he made the speech in the Rose Garden, he crossed the street. Now, I should mention that um, police officers used tear gas to disperse protesters so that Donald Trump could cross the street right. and take a picture in front of, I believe it's St. John's Episcopal Church, yep. um, which is just across the street from uh, the White House. I should We should mention this is... As has been widely reported in the media, this is a very historic church. Every president, going back to James Madison, has visited this church um, on the on the eve of their inauguration, um, and Trump did as well. He's not a frequent attender there, as far as we can tell. The last time he was there was uh, in 2017, we think, but he is not his. He's, he's not a regular attender there, but he stood out right. in front of it um, with a Bible in his hand and had his picture taken. He did not pray. He did not quote scripture. I don't think he opened the Bible. Um, and then he invited some other members of his sort of his his inner circle to sort of stand with him to have their picture taken there. Guys, what was this? What what was the purpose of this? So I'm, I'm trying to figure out just like what went down. So like, was this something that the White House sort of pre-planned or was it sort of a last minute idea that was sort of sprung and the president starts walking and they're like, oh, crap, we have to like clear all the protesters. And I mean, the way it looks terrible. I'm just trying to figure out what, I haven't read the, a lot of details about. I don't uh, think he just started walking. Um, just from the sheer, the sheer mechanics of getting there from the Rose Garden, you'd have to go through a number of checkpoints. And so I don't think he just started ambling. Um, I think this was pre this was at least in some way premeditated. Now the justification I can sort of give here a little bit is that there was some minor damage to the church as a result of the the protests. There was a small fire set in the basement of one of the church buildings. 
so it did sustain a little bit of damage. Uh, clearly, the the windows were boarded up in a precautionary way. So it, yeah. I guess it made something of a backdrop. But this was I, I. And on the one hand, I can understand why you might do this. Right, you're sort of aligning yourself and your policies explicitly with a Christian motivation. You're holding a Bible in one hand, you're standing in front of a church, and you're talking about restoring law and order. Now, as Christians, that may, I, sh I shouldn't speak for you guys. As a Christian, that makes me deeply uncomfortable. Oh, as a absolutely. political scientist, it makes me even more uncomfortable because I'm familiar with all the ways in other countries people yeah. have invoked religion to justify the use of force and the use of order. Right. And the, yeah. imp the imposition of order. And that always makes it makes me sick to my stomach. Um, yeah. I don't know if this is a good strategy for Trump. I don't know if, if the people who are inclined to sort of be attracted to his, uh, to his argument are bolstered by the faith angle, or if this is going to generate more blowback than it, than it earns him. I, I don't know about that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. certainly the, um, using force to clear peaceful protesters who are protesting injustice using using law enforcement officers to clear them away violently in order to literally wave a bible around to try to make a statement that helps you politically is um deeply problematic um in yeah. a variety of ways and i think um you don't even have to be a christian to see that either Right. I think Christians should be especially troubled. I'm not sure all Christians will be troubled. Um, no, and I think no. that is part of the era that we live in of people, including Christians, seeing everything through their through an ideological and partisan lens yeah. and different and people with different lenses perceiving perceiving the exact same events in very different ways right. and having very different responses to them. I'm not sure if the person who is predisposed to supporting Trump, even sort of the I'm going to hold my nose and support Trump sort of position. Yeah. I'm not sure that this action is going to dissuade them from supporting Trump in the future because he's already right. there's been a whole train, you might say, of of abuses by Trump. Right. And, yep. and yep. If, if they haven't been turned off by this point, then nothing Trump does you know, or this sort of instance is going to do that. Um, those people who already find Trump's behavior deeply problematic and a reason not to support him, um, you know, will simply find this as, as you know, uh, just one more sort of example of why he needs to be um, voted out of office, right? So I'm just rambling now, but, uh, you know, I think... No, I Politically, is it really going to damage him? Is it going to make a difference? I'm not so sure. So. Yeah, I agree. It's very disturbing. It's really weird. And it probably makes almost no impact. Um, because I think Trump is just so polarizing that I think most people know where they are on Trump. Um, you know, you either like him a lot, or at least you've come to peace with his you know, strange behaviors because you have certain pragmatic reasons to do so or you, there's no way you're voting for him. Yeah. Um, and I guess the, the one, this is hardly a positive, but I guess <laughs> maybe you uh, you guys who have more comparative experience that we can speak to this is that, you know, whenever, you know, 45 to 50% of a country is completely outraged perpetually about what someone on, what politician on the other side is doing, that minimizes chances of, of you know, um, that person sort of, 
you know, taking over the government um, mm. in an extra constitutional way, right? So, right. so yeah, what Trump is doing is deeply troubling. Um, how he's using religion as a prop and as a political tool is deeply troubling. And there's a long history of world leaders doing that, even with Christianity. On the other hand, you know, having, you know, a sizable chunk of the population being, you know, resolutely opposed to that, um, yep. you know, might prevent that sort of thing from from happening. You know, going to sort of the worst case scenario. Yep. Well, guys, amongst means, but <laughs> what's that? Not that not the polarization is good by any means, but um, right, right. Anyway. Well, amongst the other, uh, I, well, we'll wrap with this. Amongst the other things we yeah. don't know is we don't know any polling data out of this. These events are unfolded uh, too quickly. We don't have a lot of uh, public opinion data which shows how voters in general are reacting to the protests. Um, my, our supposition would be that they will be polarizing, and as the protest, especially as protests turn violent and rioting occurs, we would expect that people who are opposed to Donald Trump and his policies will probably have a more benign view of protests, even violent protests. And we would expect that when the more that Donald Trump is antagonistic towards protesters, even peaceful protesters, we would expect that his supporters would become more supportive of him and less supportive of even peaceful protests. Um, unfortunately, the, tra the, the tragic death of, of, uh, of George Floyd looks to become its own political issue. And I'm yeah, sorry to yeah. say that. And I wish it wasn't that Yeah, yeah I, I, it, is, it is deeply um, saddening. I think there's a few things to maybe to keep in mind. And, and as the summer unfolds and we get a better idea of public opinion and where sort of the media narrative shifts, we'll be able to address this more. I, I think, it'll be, you know, as we move forward, thinking of how this affects November, we could keep in mind a few things. First of all, um, you know, how is this going to interplay with the whole COVID-19 story, right? So you have, you have, you know, a lot of people now in close proximity, right? And, um, and everyone's like, ah, you know, social distancing, you know, we're going to put that on the back burner so that we can protest, right? Are you going to see a spread of the disease amongst people who protest if there's some concern about that? Um, if there hasn't been much of a spread of disease to people who protested, um, that might have an un weird unintended consequence of, you know, making people more comfortable with um, being together in large groups. And that could affect government policy. That could affect the recovery. So that could be interesting. Um, it'll be interesting to see, I mean, previously, just a, a week ago, well, I guess, you know, 10 days ago, we would have said, you know, the dominant sort of conversation going into the November election would have been sort of the government's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Now it's unclear if that's still going to be the case. Are we going to, is it going to be dominated by sort of this discussion that we're having now about right. race and about policing? Um, or are we gonna once this sort of simmers down, are we going to revert back to the COVID-19 pandemic and, and sort of the economic discussions that we've been having? So those are things yeah. to keep in mind as well. Also, this is potentially going to upend um, sort of the process by which Joe Biden goes about picking his vice presidential candidate. Um, mm -hmm. He's supposed to announce that sometime, if I remember, beginning of August now, it's been pushed back. Um, and previously, I mean, of course, we've said this before, we know that uh, Biden had promised to pick a woman to be his running mate. Um, of course, that shortens the list somewhat. Um, but, um, but what I think you're going to see is you're going to see um, probably a movement towards maybe, maybe picking um, a woman of color um, in response to um, in response to the uh, events of the recent weeks. Um, and also, I, th I think um, Senator Klobuchar's uh, chances are, are finished now. 
um, especially because yeah. of her role as a prosecutor um, back during her, the early days of her career, specifically in regards to um, 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 Derek Chauvin, as it turns out, um, which I think some of the criticisms aimed at her are not fair or in good faith, but optics matter. And I'd say, she, um, whereas she was a, a, you know, a top three pick for Biden, that's no longer the case. She's probably out. I'd be shocked if she was picked. Um, and I, and I definitely, in fact, I go further. I'd say it's a, it's an enormous strategic blunder if she's picked. Uh, yeah, 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 totally, totally. So I think this is going to have, have an impact on on who Biden picks, and and that could potentially have an impact on the race in general. Although it might not, because vice presidential picks don't tend to have a huge impact anyway. Right. So, although this year might be an exception for for reasons that we've already noted. So well, what we've said in the past is um, is that vice presidents can hurt you; they can't help you. And at this point, Klobuchar would absolutely hurt Biden. Yeah, it, uh, that's exactly right. Not for any fault of her own or any of her own characteristics, but because of the optics of the whole situation. Yeah. Um, and and I think people, too, are, are thinking, um, whereas, you know, vice presidential picks usually aren't a, a really big, um, excuse me, the vice, the running mate isn't really a big selling point, a detracting point for most voters. Um, this year, it might be different simply because Biden is is so much older and it's, it's expected that he could be a, a one-term candidate, um, in which case his running mate is sort of the, the obvious choice for the Democratic Party yeah. to be sort of the leader of, of the party after Biden sort of, you know, hangs up the hat, so to speak. Um, yeah. And so um, that that could play into to this equation as well. Yep. All right, guys. Um, I don't know if this is, this is apropos of nothing. But over the course of uh, our conversation, an enormous thunderstorm has broken the humidity here in, here in Maple Grove. I don't know if it's hitting you guys, but um, uh, my lights have flickered a couple times, and I want to sign off before I lose power entirely. Um, so thank you for sticking with us to this conversation. This is a hard conversation, and it doesn't end definitively uh, with us um, here or um, or certainly with our community, our society. So um we are we join um, uh, Christians around the world, but especially here in the Twin Cities, in praying for justice, um, in praying for peace, um, and ultimately praying for mercy too. Uh, you can always reach out to us, and we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can get a hold of us at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. Uh, you can also get a hold of us at channel 3900 at gmail.com. We'll be back in your feet in a couple of weeks um, until you hear from us again. Thanks for listening and go Royals.